this started. Um, I'd like to start us with prayer. Um, I thought I might do something a little different and read a prayer written by um, a Christian from the fourth and early fifth century named John Chrysostom. You may have heard of him. Um, very much considered a saintly man and a wonderful church leader. I'm struck oftentimes when I read some of these early church fathers and mothers of how acutely aware they are of their sinfulness. And I think, some, I wonder sometimes in our, so many of us in churches of Christ were raised with a sort of legalistic transactional understanding of our sinfulness that we wanted to get away from that and go into something more good news oriented, more grace oriented. But sometimes I wonder if we've forgotten how to talk about our sin in ways that are uh, kind of cheapen the grace that we receive maybe. So I, I, I hold that in mind sometimes as I read prayers like this. Um, John Chrysostom lived from 344 to 407 and was a minister in Constantinople. Let's pray together. Lord, we are not worthy that you should come under our roof, but speak the word only and your servants shall be healed. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but in our souls the Son of Man does not have a fit place wherein to lay his head. But as you did condescend to be laid in the stall and manger of beasts, as you did not disdain to be received into the home of Simon the leper, as you did not reject the woman who was a sinner when she approached and touched you, nor the thief on the cross when he confessed you, even so, condescend to admit us also, bruised and sinful creatures, to the communion of your body and spirit. <coughs> Come and meet with us, we pray, and abide in us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so um, there's a lot I hope I get to, you know, cover somehow with some adequacy today. Um, I wanted to talk about, <clears throat> we've been talking about the moves of the story, so I want to sort of revisit some of the big ones. Um, I think we can't spend too much time <laughs> talking about any of this, of course, but especially um, the resurrection and ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit. So we're spending a little more time there this week. Um, that was last week's content, but I want to dig into that a little more this week as well. Um, so, and then hopefully if we have time, I'd like to talk about um, baptism and the outpouring of the Spirit and what this means for us. So we'll see how, how far we get with all this. Um, but just a, a reminder that the broad moves of the drama up until now that we've thought about is we started with creation, with the triune God creating out of uh, love and desire for the other, um, not neediness, but desire for, um, and then creating uh, a habitable space wherein uh, we can live and all creatures can live, but also giving humans a job to do in the creation. Um, giving us the dignity of um, partnering with God to create the conditions of life in, in the midst of chaos that's still in the creation, um, expanding Eden, 
And of course, we said no to that vocation and said yes to sin. Um, I think it's important to hold in mind that at the heart of sin is this tendency to worship that which is not to be worshipped. So there's idolatry there. There's also the um, seems to be a desire to seek what we know we need, but to seek after it the wrong way. So I think of Eve, she wanted wisdom. Um, she wanted godly wisdom, but she, she sought it in a way that set aside God's guidance, right? She pursued her own um, understanding. So through this tumble into sin, um, creation keeps getting worse and worse and more disordered, and we see these different ways that God pursues a kind of rescue mission. Um, we see that through uh, the avenue of God calling um, Noah, for example, and his family. Noah's kind of like a new Adam. Um, but Noah is bound to sin, so we see that downward sp spiral happen again. Then um, God does something new with Israel, um, and something new with the covenant he makes. Remember this. This is an important piece. To um, Israel, he says, um, I am going to make sure that all these things come about, right? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless all peoples of the earth through you. So um, that's this fundamental promise that Israel always returns to, always bears in mind as they are, you know, they deal with their own tumbles and struggles. And they're, they have this acute awareness of when they fall away, when they fall into sin, which is idolatry or pursuing their own wisdom, um, then they lose contact with this promise, right? And so there's always this, you see this throughout the prophets and this, the rhythms of the Old Testament, there's always this calling Israel back to faithfulness, calling them back to their covenantal vocation, which is to be the new creation, right? Kind of, again, like the new Adam. Um, that's who Israel is supposed to be, the new Adam and Eve who are expanding Eden. But again, it's you know, they're, they're bound by sin. Um, they have the law, which is a wonderful gift. It's a means of communion with God. They have sacrificial system, which is a means of reconciliation with God. And yet, um, they need a real solution to the, to the problem of sin and the problem of their brokenness. So we said, um, what we see is when we cannot live into our vocation, God becomes human and fulfills it on our behalf. So God becomes Israel, um, and so we've talked about uh, Jesus, the incarnate one, as the one who is truly God, because only God's life can deal with the curse, the brokenness of sin and evil and death, um, but he's truly human. It's really important that we maintain both of those claims, because it needed to happen, there needed to be a human who is faithful, there needed to be, um, in order to um, redefine what it means to be human, which is why Jesus is called the new Adam. Now we inherit a new humanity through him. And I think it's also important to keep him in mind as the new Adam because he shows us what it looks like when we really live into um, our vocation as bearers of God's image. So his journey is our journey. Um, it's also a clue to what it will look like for us when we follow him that there will be a cross to bear. So we have to bear that in mind as well. Okay, so um, Jesus' life, his ministry is in conflict with the powers of sin and evil and death, uh, the powers and principalities of darkness that have an agenda to keep us enslaved. His life is in ministry or in conflict with that. That conflict leads to the cross. 
Um, and, you know, I think uh, George spoke about this last week, but um, one of the most remarkable claims that early Christians were making that was so hard for people at first to understand is that the Messiah was crucified. Everyone wanted a Messiah, a Savior, someone to fulfill this uh, role that they had been anticipating for so long. But to their minds, a crucified Messiah was a failed Messiah, right? So to, to make that claim and say this is something, this is a way God intended to work this out that we never expected um, was just, this is, a, this is a confounding mystery to people. But there's also uh, apparently some sort of real convicting power that's poured out because of the Messiah's ascension. And so we're, I want to talk about that and how that's related to the Spirit. Um, let's see. I think that's a pretty good overview of where we've been. Um, so in terms of the ascension, I want us to pay attention to a couple of passages today. Let's look at um, 1 Corinthians 15. especially verse 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20 and going through 28. Will someone read that for us? 20 through what? 28. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God from hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything (coughs) under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him that God may be all in all. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, okay, and I'd like to read. I want, I'm going to unpack that, but I want to kind of hold it alongside uh, Mark 14, 60 through 62. <coughs> Okay, and the context here is um, Jesus is on trial, and he's being questioned about who he is, who he says he is. So starting at verse 60, this is Mark 14. uh, The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him. And saying to him, are you the Christ? That's the Messiah, right? The son of the blessed one. And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, so what's going on here? Um, 
He's quoting Daniel 7, 13 through 14. So if you're interested in kind of crop, you know, kind of looking back at that and cross-referencing. Um, what he's recalling is the Son of Man is this um, mysterious, uh, apocalyptic kind of figure. Um, usually it, it's kind of a, a symbolic figure that can play different roles in Scripture. But there's a, a, an association of this being someone who is a, you know, associated with God's will on earth, a kind of heavenly emissary. Um, so in this passage, note he is coming with the clouds, not on them. So this is not about his descent, but rather some, his ascent, his ascension into heaven. It's, in other words, it's not about the second coming. Um, it's about his entrance into the heavenly throne room, the reality of God's reign. So when Jesus references this passage, he's not deflecting the question. Um, he's kind of unpacking who he is. He's saying, yes, and this is the kind of Messiah I am. Here's what you can expect. So he's saying um, he will rise and be enthroned. Um, he will come to the Ancient of Days in the clouds, and uh, the Father will give him the kingdom, and he will rule it until God becomes all in all, is this idea here. Okay, so... I think we can hold together uh, this passage from Mark 14 with the 1 Corinthians 15 passage to try to understand what happens after the empty tomb. Um, we leave this part of the story out. We, we talk a lot about the resurrection as a vindication of his righteousness, as an overcoming of death. But there's a, this is a really important moment in the story, so to speak, when he ascends and some you know things are ordered differently. Okay, so what I want to say is that um, God did raise Jesus from the dead to vindicate his righteousness. But um, there's something else going on as well. It's an inbreaking of new creation. Um, so let's think about this in light of 1 Corinthians 15. Um, in verse 23, this, this language about Christ as the first fruits. Are you all familiar with this trope or symbol? I mean, it's, it might have been a little while since you visited it. Uh, what do you hear when you hear that? Do you know what that symbolized for Israel? Sacrifice. That's right, yeah, the sacrificial system. Specifically, the first blooming of the crop. That's, supposed to, that's what you give to God. It's an act of trust. It shows this is the best of the crop, and God, we trust you that you will provide for us. We're going to offer you this, right? You don't give God an afterthought. You give God your best. So there's this... Um, a sense in which Jesus is the best and the first. Um, but also, interestingly, I think we're supposed to hear here, the first fruits are part of the harvest. They're, they kind of signal what the rest of the harvest is supposed to be like. So it's really important that your first fruits are good and healthy and strong. That indicates a strong, healthy harvest to come. So I think we can hear that we can look at Jesus's resurrected body as a promise of what our resurrection will entail. Um, it's a preview of coming attractions, so to speak. So we can think of our resurrection as rooted in his. Um, it's one reason why we, we say the kind of body we're going to have will be different, just as his was, and yet still somehow physical, just as his was. He had scars, he ate breakfast, you know, he, he did th bodily things, and yet he also uh, was very much changed in the sense that he wasn't always immediately recognizable. He seemed to be able to kind of pass in and out of rooms without having to open the door, right? So there's some sort of difference and yet some sort of physicality that's still present. Um, verses 24 through 28, still in 1 Corinthians 15, 
um, seem to indicate that uh, the life of the church is, and this is that, um, I think I've said this in here already, that fancy word that it's eschatological. Um, the eschaton is just a way of talking about the end things. And uh, in other words, to say our life has to do with the end, I think is a way of saying that our sense of who we are is oriented toward the future. Um, we know the end of the story. We are ordering our lives in light of that. We don't live as if right now is all there is. We live as if we know the end of the story, and that's going to define how we uh, see ourselves and see our neighbors and see um, the way we live in this world. Okay, so um, what we know is that everything is in subjection to Christ, um, but it's also not, okay? Um, to say that Christ is in power over all right now is, you might say, kind of legally the case. Um, I think George talked about this last week. There's something that happened like a kind of, um, in the resurrection, in the crucifixion and resurrection, God really did conquer the powers. They're as good as dead, so to speak. And yet they're still fighting with everything they have to kind of keep control or to um, maybe ruin as much of God's creation as possible. <laughs> you know, sort of a, um, the way you might, uh, someone might fight when they know that they're losing, but they just want to give it all they've got. So I think there's something like that dynamic happening. Um, but So Christ is um, overall, and there is still this battle occurring. God is still setting all things under Christ. And this is happening mysteriously in ways that we don't understand or perceive. Um, so the actual fulfillment of it has not yet come in full. We're in, that's what we're anticipating, is the actual fullness of Christ's reign over all things. But what's also um, so important for us to remember is the language of Ephesians 2, 5 through 7, which is that we share in the reign of Christ. And we are raised to sit with Christ. We are a royal people, a priestly nation. That language feels so far from us um, because when we think of priests, uh, that feels some, like something kind of, you know, so distant from our sense of how we do church or how we, you know, understand ourselves. Same thing with royalty. But I think we need to really pay attention to those metaphors because um, the priestly vocation goes right back to Eden. And it's that vocation we have to be representatives of God in the creation and those who represent the creation to God. That's one reason why we pray for what's happening in the world. Um, we pray for what's happening locally because we, God wants to partner with us in this way. We bring these things to God. And then we act as God's representatives here. And we're supposed to reign over the creation the way God wants people to reign. So it doesn't look like, I think uh, we, we think of royalty as a negative kind of image sometimes because we, we think so much about how that kind of power has been abused. But remember, this goes back to our, our calling is to, to reign as God would, um, to empower the powerless, to take care of those who are vulnerable, not to lord power over each other, right? So uh, we get to share in this enthronement. And this is what we were supposed to be at creation, what Israel was supposed to be among the nations. But only Christ fulfilled it, and he now invites us to participate in it. Now we get to be instruments of new life, uh, poured out into the world, and we do this through the power of the Spirit. So um, I want to pause and give y'all a chance to make any comments or um, 
If there's anything I can clarify, I'm happy to do so. Or you want to keep trucking along, we can. Okay, yes? So all that's happening in the world right now, this, this overload of insanity and totally unclassified, totally not disposable. This is the uh, Satan's way or a demon's way of still fighting against something we eventually can't do anything about. But it's just like, ugh, I mean, how bad can it get? Or whatever. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, it's like, God has the power to smash it, come back today. Um, but he hasn't yet today. So, um, I just, I, I, I don't know. It's probably something nobody can, nobody can really answer. I just wonder, how bad does it have to get? And... Who knows? He only knows, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and just how you live within this without just wanting to actually rebel. I mean, it's like, I feel like as Christ's child, we almost need to stand together and try to do something about it. It's like, it's, it's just taking over, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Do I make any sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think something we could all relate to, that same, the way you're narrating exactly that feeling. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's the reason why Christians traditionally pray, come Lord Jesus, right? Yes. And um, that's just a, a, a cry that we can cry together. And then also, I, I appreciate you saying it makes you want to do something <laughs> because um, that's also an important impulse for us to have. Yeah. The question is, always been what do you do in the face of that kind of uh what feels insurmountable and i think all we have is the to come back to who we are in christ what the spirit's empowering us to do and then to seek ways of being peacemakers in the world and to try our best to partner with god to be avenues of, of healing so um it takes communal discernment and it takes a willingness to act so yeah, thank you. you. When you referenced that, uh, I think the metaphor that I understood was more of a defeated foe who was uh, acting out of spite. Mm -hmm. Do you like that metaphor that I understood? Yeah, yeah, I think okay. that's a helpful one, yeah. Okay. Did you have a comment? Or, yeah. Well, just a thought on your, your comment when Jesus told the high priest, uh, you'll see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven. When it, you look in the Old Testament, <clears throat> prophets use that metaphor coming of clouds as judgment mm. on people and I I'd always kind of thought when Jesus was speaking of that he wasn't talking about his ascension so much as the judgment on uh, Jerusalem which came about what 35 years mm. later or so with the yeah destruction um, of Jerusalem as far as I understand it that that's a contested point there's different ways of looking at that verse so there you could surely make a case for that reading um i i'd heard it uh the way i'd you know read it supported as being about his ascension doesn't exclude the judgment the piece where he will also be the messianic figure who issues judgment mm -hmm. so um 
there could be, you know, so much in scripture, there can be this kind of rich ambiguity. But the way I had read it unpacked is the fact that he says with rather than on is a kind of rising. So there's an ascending happening there. But um, I think essentially what is a big picture? What, What is the big takeaway? When Christ is reigning, Christ is also judging evil. Christ is also, and yes, specifically, um, you know, one of his last, you know, important acts before he's crucified is his judgment on the temple, right? And the the ways that Israel has misused the gifts that God's given them and has abused their calling. And so there's this this judgment that happens on Jerusalem itself, right? So, yeah, I, but certainly when... The Messiah has ascended and is ordering all things. There's a, there's a, a sense in which judgment is happening. Um, so again, I think we need to hold that in mind. Sometimes we, we want to get away from talk about sin and judgment, but we need to hold those things in mind when we think about what it means to be called into being people of God. So uh, it's a helpful reminder. Um, I want to think a little bit about before we, let's see, I think we have a, a little bit of time for this. Um, about what it means that uh, Jesus was baptized and what it means that we are baptized and the, so, the association here with the Holy Spirit. So um, just want to draw your minds to think about um, the baptismal scene. So you could, you know, one instance is you can look at Luke 3, 21 through 22. Um, there's just a few reminders. I don't have time. I'm afraid we don't have time to look at this super closely, but what I'd like to say about it is um, to make a few points. In the context of Luke 3, what you see is that all the people are being baptized. Now, what is the baptism they're seeking? What are they doing? Why be baptized? What's that? Yeah, it's for forgiveness. Okay, now what, how do they understand that? This is, this is pre, you know, being baptized into Christ. What are they being forgiven of? Sins, and, and what do the sins do to Israel? What do they keep them from? That's right. The relationship with God, the communion with God, the fulfilling of the that, covenant. Up until that time, there, um, there were, there was only, the only baptism they knew was proselyte baptism, where people who were not Jewish were converting to the Jewish faith. So yeah. it was not necessary for a Jew to be baptized because they covenant nomadism. They had the blood of Abraham in their veins. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So this baptism thing is a new thing for them. It's an admission into what is the new thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great reminder. So, um, and I, I actually appreciate that reminder too because it, it, it helps us think about how for Jews, baptism is, again, this kind of rich symbol of accepting an identity. Mm-hmm. But then at this point, it's taken on this meaning of turning away from Sin and and re-entering the identity you're supposed to have, right? Yeah. Wasn't the um, the mikvah a part of that repayment? I mean, so that had been going up there. Rich, those were rich, rich just ritual washings. Yeah, those that's yep, washings. that's right. And those are about. Um, you probably have done more research on this than I have. Randall, can you just make a distinction between mikvah and um, a mikvah, baptism? Okay, a mikvah. I mean. For instance, in Caiaphas's house, what they call Caiaphas' house outside of Jerusalem, there are seven mikvahs yeah. in there, and just for ritual washings. Jews had to wash seven times a day. They had to wash before they ate. Yeah. They had to. They had to. They constantly were washing, and uh, 
That is just going down into a, a literally a baptism. That was just part of being Jewish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was also part of, right, this ritualistic cleanliness associated with godliness, right? Yeah, a kind exactly. of about being reconciled. So that adds to, the kind, again, the kind of wealth of the symbol, I would say. Um, so, yeah, I think the important thing to bear in mind here is that Jesus enters into these baptismal waters, John the Baptist, which is, interestingly, a baptism for turning away from sin. Jesus, of course, isn't turning away from sin. Uh, he's the sinless one. But what I think we can see there is a kind of solidarity with Israel, right? He's saying, I enter into this with you. I'm part of this mission. I'm part of this renewal, part of what it means for us as a people to be uh, oriented towards faithfulness to the covenant. So um, for all of us, when we follow him into the water, um, it is about uh, turning from sin. It is about saying we are going to be faithful to this uh, identity that God has given us as the new Israel, right? We're inheriting that story. That's our story. We want to be faithful. Um, and then what's also interesting is that we see, of course, um, this pneumatological, fancy word there for Holy Spirit, anointment that happens as Jesus comes up out of the water. Um, you hear the voice of the Father. You see the Spirit descending in the form of the dove. And um, you hear the Father saying, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. So um, this is one passage that Christians are really reflecting on when they start working out a Trinitarian doctrine, um, that God is actually... Um, three persons in one um, because they see the threeness here really kind of embodied. So, um, but I think what's interesting is that the Spirit is anointing Jesus, not because he didn't have the Spirit empowering him, empowering him before, but because now the Spirit is anointing him for ministry in a new way. There's something new that he's going to do on the other side of this. So uh, straight away he goes into the wilderness, um, but then he returns and begins his ministry. Um, so, you know, I think we need to bear in mind that the same thing happens in our baptism, that there is an anointing of the Spirit that empowers us for ministry. So um, in our, you know, Church of Christ tradition, we don't do formal ordination ceremonies. I think we probably could think about baptism as our ordination to ministry. All of us are ministers. All of us have received the Spirit for uh, the power of the Spirit for ministry. Um, and then, of course, that orients us towards um, entering into the way of Jesus, which is willing to suffer for what is true and um, will bear the cross, but then also experience the resurrection. And the Spirit is the one, the power that, uh, of, you know, that God uses to resurrect him from the dead. That same Spirit is going to enliven us, is the promise. Um, I think we've got just a few minutes. A, a couple more things I want to say about the Spirit, and then we'll pause for um, comments. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, the people that, that Jesus spent time with, um, probably most everyone knew about the Spirit of God, uh, of course, being active in creation, but would not, I mean, everyone knew that if you're a, if you're a good Jew, but wouldn't have thought of that Spirit as being somehow separate, a separate person, right, from uh, the Father, the source. Um, but it's when Jesus says to them, I am sending another advocate, another one to empower you, 
that might be the first time it dawns on them that this is some this is a this isn't just a power this is a person okay an advocate someone else like me who is going to help you understand the truth um, we see from scripture that from the beginning Christians have taught that uh, the spirit is personal not an impersonal divine force or power but we tend to talk as if the spirit is a power not a person I think too much we slip into that so I think what we need to remember is that the spirit is a divine actor a person who empowers I think that's uh, we associate the spirit with the power for a good reason but the spirit is uh, you know a, a divine actor not just a power I tell my students oftentimes it's not just like the force on Star Wars that you get tapped into right um, what else here I, so it seems like from scripture the spirit has two main jobs we see this anointing especially at Pentecost and um, we we can watch this unfolding of this activity all through Acts how the church is expanding but then also we can we piece a lot together through Paul's letters and also just the testimony of the early church um, from writings we have passed down that aren't uh, in the canon of scripture but we see I think two main things um, from John 15 26 through 27 uh, the Spirit's main job is to testify about Jesus and to empower the disciples to do the same. Um, that's why Christians have traditionally said the Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself. He draws attention to Christ. The, the point is the Spirit to direct our attention to Jesus, to understand who Jesus is, and to be able to testify about the good news that the kingdom of God has broken in, the, the future has broken into the present, and, and that Jesus Messiah reigns over all things. At the same time, there's the Spirit's work that's described in Romans 8, where we see that what the Spirit's doing for us is um, drawing us to participate in the life of sonship. Okay, so in verse 11, Romans 8, verse 11, um, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. And then skip to verse 14. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father... It is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I consider, this is uh, now verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. In hope, uh, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Uh, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints 
according to the will of God. So much there. I love this. One of my very favorite chapters in the Bible, uh, Romans 8. The goal of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of the Son. So in this passage, uh, Paul is attributing this work of deep transformation to the Spirit, the one who is forming us into this reality of our adoption, our sonship. Um, And of course, it's important um, to remember what sonship means. It means you have the status of one who is a member of the family, who's uh, worthy of the inheritance, right? So um, I think what's interesting is that what we see here is the Spirit doesn't create some sort of um, inner psychological state, um, but rather um, the Spirit leads us, bears witness for us, helps us in our weakness, intercedes for us in prayer, teaches us how to pray. Um, so in other words, I think, again, sometimes when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we expect to just have good feelings. Um, but that's not how they, the, these people would have understand, understood the Spirit's presence or work. The Spirit is to um, help us live into what it means to be sons and daughters of God. And um, that happens in all kinds of ways. But I think we need to find ways to open our lives to the influence of the Spirit and um, to expect that not always to be easy, not always to be uh, about feeling good, Um, but to know that when we pray, I mean, the, the prayer for the groaning of creation, the Spirit is there. Um, working in us, translating that groaning for us um, to the Father. Any questions, comments? I mean, there's so much more we can say about the Spirit and, and how the Spirit works with us and for us. But I, it, we'll, we'll have to leave off here. But is there any comment or clarifying note? Yeah. I sometimes wonder if conscience, you know, when you get this little thought, would you that together with the spirit because sometimes we get bad advice but mm-hmm. mostly we get good advice like wow I hadn't thought of that let me do that what do you think I think um, I'm trying to think of where I read this recently I think we have to be careful that we keep the Holy Spirit one reason why the doctrine of the Trinity is helpful and practical is because it reminds us that the spirit is forming us into Christ's likeness we have a standard, uh, we have, there's content there, um, and what Christ is calling us to is the glory of the Father, the will of the, you know, you can think of that as this, the one, uh, the source of divine desire, right? What God's desire is for all of us. So I think what happens sometimes is we appeal to the Spirit when we have, uh, when our conscience is pricked or when we have a sensibility that we want to follow, but people who aren't Christians could have that same sense, right? Not the That's right. And so I think um, this is one reason why prayer is so important and giving our will over to God, trying to submit our will, because then certainly the Spirit could work through our conscience and the Spirit could um, kind of talk to us, so to speak, through some sort of inner sense. Um, but I think it's when we forget that we're supposed to be submitting and being formed in Christ-likeness to the glory of the Father that we can go off the track there. Yeah. Okay, can we go back a little bit to the baptism and the receiving yeah. of the Holy Spirit? Because I know a lot of people say when you confess your sins and you're saying, you know, you're going to follow Christ, is more when you get the Spirit 
and that the act of baptism is just a later uh, outward act of let people know that that's what you've done. I know. I think a lot of religious, yeah. you, know, you can just pray and receive, and now you receive the Holy Spirit. So how yeah. would you say when we're getting yeah. the Holy Spirit? I think, you know, what we see in Acts, for example, is that the Spirit, it's, it's not a very transactional picture of um, when the Spirit arrives um, in terms of the, in relation to baptism. It seemed oftentimes that the Spirit is drawing people to baptism. Um, and yet there is a very definitive sense in which you, we are baptized for the power of the Spirit. I think there is a special anointing associated with baptism um, and I also think it's a real shame that we got to a point theologically where we started to think of this as an individualistic, like, I'm going to believe, I'm going to have this sense, and then I can get baptized as a sort of outward sign of something internal, because that really forgets how communally and physically constituted we are. And so, um, you know, when we're baptized, our baptism is about, um, it's a communal act. It's not something we do in isolation. And um, the anointing is, is anointing us for mission. It's an empowering for mission. So it's not, you know, I think about like my kids. I think of my kids as Christians. Um, I think of them as being guided by the spirit in some mysterious way. And yet I think something different and something really important will happen when if and when I pray, they take on baptism as their identity, right? And say, I want to give my life to this, to, to Christ and be, transformed by the Spirit in a new way. Um, so I think, uh, again, this, this is such a, there's so much to say here. It's hard to answer quickly. But I feel like it's, we, we have the wrong idea when we think it's all about an internal, personal, private experience, right? And that was, that's my difficulty with churches of uh, and people. They don't want to publicly do it. Mm-hmm. I'll do it on a Tuesday night when just oh, a couple people are there. Well. I don't want to be in front of all these people. But if you can't confess in a baptism that you're going to follow Christ, how are you in your daily life going to confess that you are following Christ if you can't do it at the beginning? Interesting. It seems much more difficult to do it throughout your life when those situations are never going to come up. Yeah, that's an interesting way of kind of highlighting the communal piece, right? Yeah. Good. Any others? Yeah. Um, I I love the way you talked about our interactions with the Holy Spirit and what that looks like in a practical way. Um, one of like my um, ways that I've utilized the Holy Spirit is doing hard things with human people. Because <laughs> like, it doesn't feel good to um, forgive. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel good to you know love my enemies or do anything that Christ is asking mm-hmm. us to do to be like him. Mm-hmm. And one of the scriptures that stood out to me is that he's a comforter. You mm-hmm. know? And so when it doesn't feel good and I have to like lay that down and it feels like an injustice to me that he's there to comfort yeah. me in that decision to look more like Christ. Yeah, and what a great I, reminder. Yeah, and so finding that I require more comforting in these decisions, you know, because I don't feel good all the time. Yes. And it helps me to do that yeah, and that's that empowering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we pray, you know, tr- the way we should think of prayer is, is a kind of Trinitarian event, that the Spirit is the one helping us to pray, um, drawing us into Christ-likeness, you know, praying to the Father. And yet I think it's appropriate for us to say, Holy Spirit, come 
fill me, comfort me, help me, except those little everyday cross-bearing moments that are so hard sometimes, like your naming, I think that's so important. Um, it's almost easier for us to think of it in a grand gesture and these kind of inspiring stories, but really what most of us have to face is these everyday kind of moments of saying, I'm not gonna choose revenge, or I'm not gonna choose resentment, or yeah, so thank you, that's great. We are well past time, I probably need to wind up. Um, thanks y'all, and happy Thanksgiving.